Welcome to Art Lovers Forum. Gabrielle Vitolo, better known as Gabo, takes us on the adventures of being an up-and-coming artist. She talks about her everyday life and what it takes creating art that an artist can be proud of. At the present time, Gabo is most famous for her tabletop sculptures. Art collectors love them because they're completely different from anything they have ever owned. The sculptures make a very daring statement every time you see them. They also reflect the collector's confidence to own something that is very different than anyone else's. Gabo says the three-dimensional metal sculptures question the viewer's conventional definitions of space, architecture, and form to challenge the status quo. Gabo also focuses on abstract painting, sculpture, printmaking, and collage to create a multi-dimensional experience that resists categorization and breaks boundaries. She received her BFA in painting from Maryland Institute of College 2012 and her MFA in studio art from New York University Steinhardt 2017, where Gabo studied multi-dimensional techniques that hybridize traditional and digital media. In 2018, Gabo relocated to Berlin, Germany on a Fulbright research grant for painting and print printmaking to research Albert Duro's dynamic printmaking compositions for their paintings. In 2022, Gabo returned to Brooklyn, New York. Gabo is also an adjunct painting and drawing faculty member Montclair State University and Pratt Institute. For more on her bio, look at the copy that will accompany this podcast on all streaming services. Welcome, Gabo. So, Gabo, thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate it. How did you come up with the name Gabo? Oh, um, someone in middle school gave me that nickname after a Simpsons character. I was like 12 years old, but actually this person ended up going into marketing for like Nike and all of these uh, shoe brands. But um, my friend Tucker, who gave me that name, still says it's probably the best branding he's ever done. <laughs> um, what, why does he feel that way? Um, because it's just stuck and just seems to really fit me and my personality really well. <laughs> Um, Did a lot of people catch on instead of calling yes. you Gabrielle? Yes, like all of my students, a lot of my close friends. Um, it, yeah, it's it, it stuck pretty well. Most people use it when referring to me. Well, I love that name, G-A-B-O, right? Yes, that's correct. So how long have you, Gabo, how long have you been involved in the art world? Um. Well, my mom was a high school art teacher. She's now retired. So I, I just always drew and painted as a hobby, but I wasn't really um, acknowledged as an artist or like I didn't really see myself as an artist until around the time I was 16, 17. That's when I received a Scholastics Art Award. And also um, I was selected as 
a finalist for Young Arts. And that's when they flew me to Miami and I got to meet this whole community of other artists who were really passionate about what they did. But I just didn't know that these other people existed who like to draw and paint and were quite serious about it. So that was the point in time where I started to see myself as an artist and even consider the idea of like being an artist as um, a pursuit or a career. Where did you go to high school? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> First, I went to West Town, which was a, a Quaker school for a year, um, but I didn't like it there. So then I went to Archmere Academy for my sophomore year of high school, which is where actually Joe Biden went to school and also both of his sons. Um, but it was a very academically competitive school. Um, most people go into like the sciences or business or politics. And I was kind of the outlier art artist who had a scholarship to go there. Um, but I had a teacher who really pushed me to be competitive with myself. And that's when I started to get some national recognition for my art. So then I ended up leaving that school because it also didn't seem like a good fit. And um, I started going to college when I was 17 years old. So I studied at Westchester University, which is the university from my hometown. And I also studied at the Delaware College of Art and Design. So I was doing college level art classes in high school. And that was the portfolio for me to get into young arts. That's very interesting. So where were these schools, in Delaware or in Pennsylvania? Um, so I'm from Westchester, Pennsylvania, and it's a short drive from Wilmington. So like Archmere Academy was in Wilmington. Um, Delaware College of Art and Design was in Wilmington. Westchester University was like a five-minute walk from my parents' house. Mm -hmm. Wow. So did you know the Bidens? Not personally, but my mom did see him on Amtrak sometimes. Oh, yeah, um, and she, she did know his son because she did teach at Archmere Academy too. That's how I knew about the school in the first place. Was she was the she taught there before um, she had me. So she knew the Hunter family. Yes. the Biden family. Right? Biden family. Yeah, Hunter. Uh, so Hunter and his brother were both there. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Okay. That's that's very that that's very unique. A claim to fame. So uh, anyway. Um, how did you decide what category of art that you were going to be involved with? Oh, um, it was really unusual. I first took a, an oil painting class, but it's nothing at all like the oil painting class that I teach right now in Montclair State University. Like my my curriculum is a lot more structured and there's like a progression that makes sense. Whereas like, my oil painting, my first oil painting class was like really wild and off the walls. <laughs> like we studied fauvism, like that was our introduction to oil painting, um, which was like this art movement in France where all these artists just wanted to be, you know, anti-institution, like anti-academic painting. So we learned how to make paintings using like colors straight out of the tube like no mixing colors at all just like super high key and like all of the paintings were done with palette knives we didn't use any brushes 
So I just got this really unusual introduction to oil painting that, um, you know, I, I continued to use into college and quite confused my college professors, <laughs> actually. Um, right. But then, like, in my senior year, that's when I started doing charcoal drawings of me repositioning this skeleton from the bio lab um, at the high school where my mom taught, like, just, like, in different spaces. And then I was also um, setting up a tripod, and then I would move throughout the landscape, like my hometown, carrying this skeleton. So, and then I did these um, charcoal drawings that were like really high contrast, really velvety. Um, and so there was like a performative aspect to making the work that you could see. Um, and it was very much so about my body and incorporating technologies into the process, like that being the camera. So it's interesting because that's still carried through all the other work that I made following that. Um, like there's just certain themes and aspects of oneself that just kind of don't seem to go away. Um, but it was funny because once I was making these charcoal drawings, rather than these like Fauvist inspired paintings, then everyone loved them. I was getting all of these awards. Um, I got into every art school that I applied to. Um, so, but then I always like to pivot. Like once I get comfortable, I always want to do something new. So once I went to MICA, then I started experimenting with oil painting and trying all these different things. Um, and it became more, you know, traditional, I guess, in the first three years, because that's what a lot of people at MICA were doing at the time, just straightforward observational painting. Um, and then by my senior year, I had a professor who was like, these paintings are so boring. <laughs> like, like oh you're making such, such crazy stuff coming into this school and the stuff you're making at MICA is really boring. You have to do something different. Um, and so I, how did, you take, how did you take that? You know, oh, I was really sad <laughs> at the time. I was really sad, but then like, but then I just kind of pick myself up and keep going. That's just like, I did a lot of sports when I was growing up. Like I was a competitive rower in high school and that's just kind of like an athlete mentality is like you take a hit and then you just kind of get up and keep going. So I, I, I think I kind of have that disposition for, um, you know, the ups and downs of an artist's career as well. It's like I just kind of, you know, feel the feelings because that's the healthy thing to do. And then I just kind of go back um, into the studio, maybe, you know, rethink my strategy a little bit. And usually that is what makes really interesting work. Um, but then when, after I got that feedback, I... You know, I received an Elizabeth Greenshields grant to like go do figurative painting in Florence, Italy and study abroad for a semester. But then I ended up making all of these really wild paintings of the butcher shops there because it was like something that I just never saw in America where like you could see all of the like the heads of the animals and the claws and the fur and, and feathers. And um, I the paintings were like really, ab they were starting to become abstract. So um, I think I used just red and black and the white of the page. Um, and I was doing these paintings of meat slices and then eventually dog mouse paintings as well. And they were like really wild <laughs> and off the walls, but people really liked them. 
Um, so like that was my thesis show for undergrad. And then once I got to New York, I kind of built on that um, kind of animal-esque hybrid um, idea and expanded the color palette. And yeah, just, there's just like a um, an evolution that happened in the time when I was in New York and then when I moved to Berlin. Um, wherever I am, that changes the work. It, it's really amazing to listen to you, I have to say, because you sound like you could have been an artist decades ago or the modern times. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of artists that really can't express their feelings about their art and what their practice is all about. And you've managed to do that beautifully. It's very inspiring. And because you did that so well, I want you just to backtrack a little bit because I think how you feel about yourself in art is the way business people should feel about themselves, and they don't. <laughs> So, so, so I, I deal in the world, in addition to art, in the world of tech and consumer electronics. And, you know, there are so many entrepreneurs or so-called entrepreneurs that have come up with some sort of a innovative idea for a gadget or, you know, an ecosystem of some sort that's very involved. And if they don't get the money, you know, to, uh, for investment value, or they don't sell it either B2B or B2C, that's business to business or business to consumer, they crap out and they go work for their father. So, <laughs> um, so, so it's interesting the way you described yourself and you're, you're expecting as an artist for things not to work and how you, you know, energize yourself again. What is that brain process like? Um, yeah, I it's. I mean, I I think that the way I go about art is like not dissimilar from I think how a lot of musicians work. I mean, I'm I'm not a musician. I'm I'm very interested in music, um, like a whole whole range of different uh genres and types of music but it's like if i'm not responding genuinely to how i feel about you know what's going on in the world like i just have to have my antenna up and if it's not like a genuine response to what's around me and what what i'm feeling then it's just dead um you know it's i'm not strat like strategizing so much as to like what the work will be because there's so many factors that you can't predict. Um, you know, I didn't know a year ago that I would be bending metal manually. Um, you know, that was, that was something I couldn't have predicted at all, but I was just open to the experience. Um, and even when I'm bending metal, it's like I was showing you before that um, I do these like maquettes before is like kind of like a study, which is something we do in painting It's like before you, you go into a big painting, you might do like a small 15 minute study just to block out the colors. So you have a little bit of a game plan, but then when you scale it up, it's completely different. And it, it's the same with like making the big metal sculptures too, is like, I, it, it doesn't look exactly like the small version, but if I tried to make it exactly like it, it would be rigid. Um, 
so it's yeah it's um openness not being afraid of change these are things that are really bad or like not bad but like really difficult for humans you know absolutely um, absolutely it, I, I don't know where um so how did you get that gift of being I don't know um I, I really don't know uh I just was always interested in everything when I was a kid like I liked constructing model race cars out of paper for science class I liked languages I liked music and and art like like Leonardo da Vinci was my favorite artist when I was a child and so I just thought that one could be like a scientist and an artist at the same time but then it turns out with industrialization and specialization that's not really a thing anymore um but uh yeah I don't I guess I just um was encouraged by my parents to try lots of different things because they couldn't really figure out what I was going to do or what I was going to be like they thought I was going to be a, a high school art teacher um after completing college and things didn't work out that way <laughs> so um I think they were just kind of encouraging me to be open and try new things because uh they wanted me to have some sort of stable job but they couldn't figure out what that would be um but also my dad runs his own business and he has to take or he had to take certain risks and you know every now and then he'll give me a little piece of advice um but his business is very different like he publishes a journal about the distribution and regulation of hazardous materials but written for like middle management so like we're we're both running our own businesses but he really doesn't understand how my industry works so like you know he has cer certain blind sights to what i'm doing but there are some basic elemental um you know business ideas that i think he's passed on to me like the idea of you know investing in oneself and taking risks um so does the word failure mean anything to you so if somebody has another artist has a show and nothing sells uh what you know how would how would you react to that how would you get yourself you know energized again um if that happened to me um i've seen it happen to my friends before and, and they seem to keep going so um i think they just keep going cuz they love um the process of making things but also maybe they're just really into the game you know like sometimes you win sometimes you lose um i know but you could talk to actors and actresses and if they have one bad movie they may you know decide to uh forget acting and go start a gas station oh really i didn't know yeah. that was <laughs> i didn't know that was a thing <laughs> Um, oh, well, well, there are a lot of actors and actresses who, you know, they're very insecure. And if things don't go their way, they hide. Uh, yeah. There was a story years ago. I forgot the name of the actor, but his wife, you know, after he won some Academy Awards Oscars, uh, she told, you know, some magazine writers that after every, you know, performance he did, he would come home, go into the living room, lie down on the couch and start crying 
that, oh. you know, he'll never be a success again. That was the last thing. What's he going to do? How is he yeah. going to support his family? So I, yeah, that's, that's where I want you to go on that. Like, right. I mean, I think that's a perfectly yourself? human response, though. You know, I don't think that there's anything wrong with um, reacting in that way. Um, everyone processes, you know, hardships in different ways. Um, but for me, it's like if things may not go the way I anticipated, um, that hasn't happened to me, I'd say, for some time. I think I'm in a relatively good position right now, but like things might not go exactly according to plan. And um, then I have to kind of reorient myself and try to think about making art as more of like an active play and try to learn to enjoy the like the playful and experimental aspect of making art because that's that's really the best part is like the sense of discovery and wonderment of the world and just how material behaves like you can't really predict what's going to happen but just the fact that like you know I can go to the studio and like have this like sensation that anything could happen like that's really exciting and like keeps my curiosity going so I think just being a curious person um and like you know curious about the world that can I think help drive someone rather than thinking about like everything has to go according to plan um and just kind of accepting that things might not always go as how you expected um but, but you never you never really treat it as a criticism of yourself. Um, the world is really complex, and I can't know everything. Um, there's lots of things that are going on that I don't have control of, and it right. isn't necessarily a reflection of me or the work. So I would say that you have a lot of tolerance. I don't. I'm like <laughs> always, freak, always freaking out, always trying to figure out who's going to screw me in a way that, you know, I'm not going to be able to get something done. You know, uh, the earth, you know, the sky is falling and stuff like that. You have a wonderful, wonderful gift in your attitude. And I really hope that a lot of people listen to this podcast <laughs> to see to see that there are other ways of, you know, taking information in and uh, digesting it in a way that there's a positive outcome. Uh, you have to be open to it and you have to believe. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And whatever your parents did, they did a great job in giving you the confidence because oh. most most people just don't have it. I mean, when you listen to actors and actresses or musicians speak, they'll tell you, that, you know, they expected everything to die. And when things go well, they're like, whoa, how did that happen? So, uh, you know, while they may be very successful, uh, they're, they're not really, uh, they're not really pushing themselves in a way that other people would accept them because it's just too difficult for them, you know, if things don't go the right way. So they're really happy uh, when things do. And they think it's like a miracle. You think it's because you put in the time and the effort, which is, you know, pretty terrific, I must say. 
Well, uh, how did you how did you decide to be a sculptor? Um, I was actually going to get to that with some of the things you just said. I mean, um, go right ahead. Ignore yeah, me. <laughs> I mean, I have, you know, I'm not a perfect human being. I have very stressful moments too. Um, you know, particularly with like being in New York and having to juggle, you know, being an artist, going to shows, making the work, you know, doing, having a day job. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not always perfect. Like I, I do get stressed out sometimes, but sometimes, you know, things are like not so busy that I can enjoy the ride a little bit, <laughs> you know, just the mm -hmm. ride of being an artist. Um, but uh, I was in a weird situation. So one example where I was particularly stressed out. Um, so I was a painter, um, even though, you know, in college, my professors were not into my paintings and were telling me to stop painting because they were so crazy um, in terms of like my sense of color and the paint application. Um, so I still stuck with it and ended, like by the end of college they thought I was they said I was I was a good painter and um I continued to paint in my 20s I was an art fabricator for a number of artists including Jeff Koons um so that I could pay my rent while living in New York and um I went to grad school and I experimented a little bit with digital technologies, like bridging digital technologies with painting. And then um, with that body of work, I applied for a Fulbright Research Grant and um, got to move to Berlin, Germany. And I stayed there for three and a half years through the pandemic. And then I came back to teach at Montclair State University in Pratt. Um, and while I was in Berlin, I had you know, developed a body of abstract work because I just became a more introspective person and became interested in working abstractly. And um, when I was back in New York, um, Fredericks and Fraser Gallery sent me an Instagram message. This is actually exactly a year ago. I was actually in Miami when they sent me the message because um, I was making these uh, little metal sculptures just out of, like flashing aluminum. Um, and they thought they looked really cool. But the thing is, in the photos, there's no sense of scale. So even though they're like eight inches tall, they all, they could also be like 25 feet tall. Um, <laughs> so they said they thought they were awesome. They wanted to do a studio visit. And, uh, I was a little bit worried because I didn't think they realized how small they were because most people don't read the captions. But we did the studio visit and I asked them, you know, if they were aware how small <laughs> they were from the Instagram post. They're like, oh yeah, we read the captions. I'm like, okay, good. Wow, right. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then they immediately after that asked, like, can you make one this big? Well, you know, making measuring a height of like about four feet tall. And, you know, I really wanted the opportunity to show with them because they were basically offering me a spot in a group show. So I just said yes without knowing what I was getting into. And so I, I panicked for 48 hours after that studio visit <laughs> because 
I'm not a sculptor. I don't know anything about metalworking or um, different types of metal, how they behave. Um, but and then I had two weeks of just like really intensive research, figuring out how to do this hypothetically. Like, would it be cheaper to have a fabricator or to make it myself? And then it turned out that I had to make it myself. Like that was all I could afford to do. Um, but then I also was able to secure funding from Young Arts in the form of a micro grant, and that helped fund the project, like in terms of the cost of the metal and water jet cutting, et cetera. Um, and then I had to learn how to like bend metal and, um, you know, find archival prints that I could collage onto it. Cause with that time frame, I, I couldn't paint the patterns onto the metal. I had to like collage it essentially. Um, and that was over the course of, I'd say, two and a half months and then it was installed in the gallery and and it looked great and it was um I mean I, I loved that gallery since I was like 16 years old and it was kind of like fulfilling a lifelong dream for me but it was like like I wanted it so bad that's why I went through the really stressful process mm-hmm. um it but it's like stress can also like stress or fear like the fear of failure can also like if you you know position it or frame it in your mind right it can actually be a motivator that pushes you from behind so like the stress can be a motivator for me um and for some other people I think but um I don't know if it's sustainable but now it's like a lot easier for me to make these sculptures because like I like I've already figured out how to do it um so yeah, that's that's how I got into sculpture. It kind of chose me. I I was like very hardcore painter. Um this just kind of out of the blue happened in less than a year ago. So during this time, do you ever think about getting into other areas of art? Um well, public sculpture for one. I mean, that that's still sculpture. But I am also thinking about, um, you know, bringing elements of printmaking into it. Like I have an intaglio background, which is basically, you know, taking a, a piece of metal, that being copper, and then covering it in this wax grease and removing it with a needle point and then submerging it in acid so it eats away at the metal. So I'm interested in bringing more printmaking into, like, the treatment of the surface of these sculptures. Um, I'm also interested in like painting on them, but I, I'm not sure how that's going to happen yet. It's actually more complicated than you would think. <laughs> um, it's yeah, like metal is not easy to paint on. One would imagine. That's incredible. I mean, so do you think you're going to continue to do this because your pieces are so beautiful that everyone's <laughs> going to want one? I mean, how do you, I mean, how, what's your approach? What's your feeling towards? these magical pieces that you make? Um, I mean, I, I'm making a few in the studio right now, so I have inventory. Um, and, you know, I have a system for making them where it could easily scale in terms of, like, size, but also in terms of production. So um, I think there are ways 
to meet demand. Um, right now I'm just like funding everything myself, but in the future, like if they go bigger in scale, there would have to be some sort of budget, I think. Um, but right now I'm just like making them and enjoying making them and learning more about metal while I'm in the metal shop. Um, so Gabo, when you're making your pieces, what are you thinking about? Are you meditating? Are you, you know, focused completely on the project? Are you thinking about what you had for di- going to have for dinner that night? What, <laughs> what's going What's going through the, your mind? And most of the time, you're alone in your own studio, correct? Yeah, I mean, there's different phases. So, um, I do a drawing first, like a line drawing for the shape. And then I make that into a vector file um, and water jet cut it. And then after it's water jet cut, then I bend it in the metal shop, um, you know, using my whole physical body strength because I'm just using like manual machinery or I'm like clamping it to a table and like just using all of my strength to bend it. Um, Mm -hmm. And like in that mind state, it's more, you know, that, that has more to do with like athleticism and just kind of like throwing really throwing one's whole self into the process um and you know i i kind of think a bit about music that i love so um when i'm in the metal shop i listen to a lot of music that has kind of industrial sounds to it lots of electric guitars (laughs) Um, i just i just like how you know rock music and punk music and industrial like occupy space and how it can kind of reshape your perceptions of the space in which you're listening to it Um, or if it's in headphones it might alter your mind state and so like with my sculptures it's like I also want to create that effect where one's perceptions are reshaped and like the space in which the sculpture is existing you know starts to change the way you see the space around it like with rectangular painting it's often about like surface or pictorial space like you're looking into a window but um i don't know i guess there was a bit of a a rigidity to it that um like like the paintings were very full there was a lot of energy in my rectangles and they had like no way to break out but when I'm doing these um, these sculptures, something about the expressiveness of the edge has that same effect, but it also breathes. Um, and that's also why I use high-key colors, because I like how it, it starts to activate the space around it as well, or like starts to challenge your perceptions and stimulate your retina in a way. Um, and then when I am collaging onto the surface of the sculptures I'm usually in my painting studio there's like a little bit of painting and retouching that goes on in the process too um and then I varnish them but when I'm doing that kind of more meditative work that where I can sit down um I guess I'm listening to more science podcasts (laughs) and things like that um it's like a different mind state like Bending. You're a very yeah. You're a very social person. Uh, 
do you find that, that you're alone a lot and do you ever think about the lifestyle you have? Is it a lot of isolation or are you constantly mixing with friends? Oh, I mean, when I was in high school, I was very self-isolating. I was like totally a goth kid. Um, I, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was changing schools every year. I couldn't really make any friends. Mm-hmm. Um so like when I went to Young Arts, it was like the first time where I felt like I had a community of friends. Um, Tell people what that is. Oh, it's a National Arts Award program for um, young artists that are 15 to 18 years old. And it's in multiple disciplines, including like theater, classical music, jazz music, visual arts, design, um, dance. It's, you know, it's like a program for prodigies. Basically, and where is it located? It's in Miami, Florida. Um, so for nationals, they fly all of the finalists to Miami to showcase their work, and then basically to get the panelists to know them a little bit more, and um, you know, give them scholarships for college based on you know their presentation. How did you hear about that? Um, I well, when I was applying to art schools. Um, RISD was one of the schools I applied to, but before I applied, I was, you know, I called, I was like, Hey, um, I hear you're a great school, uh, but your tuition is so high and you don't give out a lot of scholarships. Like, what do I do? <laughs> and they said, Oh, apply to young arts. I'm like, okay. And then when I got here, it's like, you know, I was like very socially awkward. I had no idea what was going on. I never heard of an art magnet school before. So, like, I didn't really have any prep work or coaching going into young arts. Like, I didn't know how to present myself. Um, so, it was, like, a very overwhelming experience for me. But um, as a result of being so shy back then, I, I think I have a lot more empathy for the young arts winners that I work with every year as a resident advisor. Um, and I, I really love going back and being part of that community. So even though like I wasn't the most social person back then, I feel like I can participate more now. Um, And I was, yeah, I mean, I was really into being alone in the studio for a while. And I think, I don't know, around, I don't know at which point I became more social. I still think I'm very antisocial in a way. (laughs) Um, But I do love people. You know, and um, well, could you go like a whole day or several days without speaking to anyone and just doing your work? I don't like that anymore. I think I I was okay with that when I was younger, but now it's like uh, the more experiences I've had to be around other people, um, the more I've realized that like community is so important and socializing is so important, and like part of that was like being an art fabricator and working on a team. And I just really loved, you know, working on a team with other artists towards this goal. Um, when like the synergy between all the workers was really good. Like it just mm-hmm. felt really nice. And um, I think it was through those experiences in my twenties that I realized like you, know, I like being around people. Um, I really love teaching and being around students, I, I like their passion and their energy. So I, just as I've grown older, even though like I have a bit of a goth aesthetic, 
Um, I do ultimately <laughs> like being do. around people and socializing. Mm-hmm. And so um, like now I'm, I'm like kind of setting up my studio structure in such a way that I can have more time to be around other people and like, you know, maybe have a relationship in my life. So, um, like my, my formal decisions, decisions in the art are like very straightforward now, I would say. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I can be a lot more decisive. Well, congratulations about that. So who, who are some of the artists that have influenced you, uh, over the years that you feel that they're kind of like, you know, your silent mentors? Um, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of artists I really like. I mean, I've, I've made lists before. Um, when I was a senior in college, I had a professor who showed me Frank Stella's Indian bird series. And that really blew my mind. Like, I didn't know that you could make a painting like that. Um, and I actually saw that show live at Munchen Gallery this year and it was it was incredible seeing that whole series of works from the 70s in one room with the maquettes that was that was pretty neat um I also like a lot of renaissance artists because I have a figurative painting background and I I studied in Italy and art history like Italian art history and it's like during that time you know all those artists were responding to like these cutting edge technologies and innovations of their time so a lot of the artists I'm inspired by are, are actually like Renaissance artists, which is why I have Albert Durer tattooed on my arm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, he was like one of the biggest innovators of the printing press in terms of fine art. Like his his engravings are incredible, and his his woodwork is incredible. Um, uh, and yeah, he's just a uh, a genius I I think really innovative for back then um I also think about people like Jacqueline Humphreys and Katarina Gosa like people who use technology in building abstract you know pictorial like abstract space or you know treating an abstract surface in a more three-dimensional way um who else like, Do you think that you that you would ever get into architecture? I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I mean, one one thing that was super cool about the Fredericks and Freiser group show was that during the opening, all of these architects and engineers wanted to talk to me, like all like you know of all ages, and they're like, "This is so cool! Like, I want this to be huge!" Like, <laughs> even though it was how like did four you, feet. How tall. did you get ex- How did you get exposure to them? They just walked up to me. <laughs> you mean in, in the in the gallery at the opening? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, that should have given you a hint about something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, they really do have the potential to scale, you know, given the right budget. Um, I'm also, you know, like I I when I worked for Katarina Gosa, we had an engineer on the team so it's like and I actually really liked that dynamic of having an engineer in the room so that's also something um I'm really curious about is like having these really structured thinkers you know just like in my life <laughs> um 
so yeah, that was that was another job I had when I was in Berlin, Germany, um, during the pandemic. So where do you think you're going to go in the future? Um, in the future, I don't know. <laughs> I like I I I think that's also part of why I'm still able to do what I do is like I can't really make predictions about where I'm going to be. Like I didn't know that I was going to stay in Germany for three and a half years. I thought it was only going to be for like 10 months. And then once I was in Germany, I thought I was going to die there. And then um, it turned out that, you know, teaching wasn't really an option for me there. So I, I came back the U.S. and I moved to New York of all places. Like it's been a lifelong lifelong goal of mine to move to Philadelphia, and it never works out, and I don't know why. Um, it, it should be like the easier move, but um, I, I just keep ending up in bigger cities. Um, I mean, so you a life. Put, you put New York before Philadelphia, or you still want to get to Philadelphia because you did New York. Um, I still want to go to Philadelphia, and. I think part of it is like there's so many affordable spaces there. It's, it's a cheaper city, but like one of my goals is to like get a rundown factory or, or like farm or something and then just kind of build the utilities into it as like a really big studio. Like that's... <laughs> I, like lots of artists have done this, like Katarina Grossa and Anselm Kiefer, and um, you know, just from like working for these artists, you kind of learn a little bit about certain life decisions they made and why. Um, also, you get to see that a lot of these artists have ups and downs in their career, and um, you know, some of them take it well, and some of they some of them don't. Um, and you just kind of have to leave room in your life to have a sense of community and elements of fun. And, like, I still struggle with that sometimes, creating the balance between being alone in the studio and having these other elements in my life. But, like, I'm really – I really try to be a multifaceted human being. Um, like, it's really important to me to work in education still. So in the mm -hmm. future – you know, I see myself still working in education, whether that's part-time or full-time, I don't know. Um, and I would like to, you know, potentially do more public sculpture works while also exhibiting in galleries. Um, and, you know, you hopefully... Sound, you, sound like you, you sound like you want a studio that's a destination for people to travel to and see your work and yeah. have discussion groups and, and you know... Uh, uh, you know, people could, you know, either stay with you or vacation nearby. And, you know, it just becomes a place, you know, an artist's de destination where, you know, so many artists have that kind of a, you know, Calder had that kind of space. I think it was Connecticut where, you know, he did his work and people came by and, uh, you know, uh, you know, they sat and they, you know, talked about new ideas and innovation and, uh, saw his work and, you know, gave comments on it and he looked at their work and it was just a, uh, you know, like a space that, uh, you know, provoked a lot of thinking. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Philadelphia is also very accessible from New York. 
know, you can take New Jersey Transit or Amtrak or drive. So, you know, it, it's not like I would be fully separated from New York either. Um, mm-hmm. but like, you know, that's like a loose goal I have. I'm also open to other possibilities. Like, I don't want to get, like, there's like a lot of, um, I have certain life goals that I've been able to fulfill. Um, it usually takes longer than I think, <laughs> but I I usually get there eventually. So, yeah. Do you, so just before we end this podcast, I want to know, like, do you feel that you're going to get into a lot of public art in the future? And how important is that? Um, I think it could be fun. Um, I'm sure it'd be a lot of work. The reality is that public sculpture is not very lucrative. Um, and so I don't think it's something that I would do full time, even though there are some people that do that. But it's like all of the money basically goes into the production and the materials. Um, so I think that I'm still going to be like showing and selling in galleries you know, kind of small, like more scaled down versions of the public sculptures um, and probably some paintings as well. Like I'm thinking about doing some shaped paintings. So one of my goals for 2024 is to get better at woodworking so I can like build my own custom stretcher bars. Um, And also just continuing with teaching. So just like having lots of different elements in my life at once. So that was an interesting point that you mentioned. I thought that, or from discussions I've had with other artists, that public art is lucrative and that when we walk through Central Park or we go past uh, 9 West 57th Street and we see that big nine, or we go to a museum and there's art outside or an office building, I thought those are like, you know, multi-billion dollar pieces that you know, the commercial developers bought and have on display. Isn't that how it works? I mean, the thing is, like, if you think of someone like Anish Kapoor, um, it takes a lot of money to make those pieces. Um, Like, he's not making any money from those public sculptures that he makes. I, I think it's like pure ambition and ego where he made his money was from selling smaller scale sculptures out of the studio and in galleries. Like that, that's where he made a lot of his money. Um, and then I guess also some real estate as well. Um, in my experience, talking to people who work in public art, they, they say there's like no money in it. Like pretty consistently, both like the artists themselves, also, the architects that like support these projects, they're like, yeah, it's like there's there's really no money left over for the artists at the end. Um, I mean, they get an oh RSP, but in terms of like the amount of work that it entails, they're really not making any money. Um, so there has to be like other forms of income. I mean, I'm sure there's someone out there who has like figured out a way and can prove me wrong. But just from my own personal experience of talking to people, um, you know, that's you know, that's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like so, for, with like Anish Kapoor's The Bean is like they had like a multi-million dollar budget in the beginning, but then it turned out that like they needed even more money and it was 
like many millions of dollars in order to make that bean in Chicago. So, you know, um, but he had like a donor fund that project. Mm -hmm. Wow. So do you think public art is almost like a marketing tool so people see the name and then, you know, it's kind of an advertisement for future business? Yes. Yeah. I, it's more, I think, of like a, a billboard, essentially, mm -hmm. for the other works. Um, but, you know, it could be spiritually fulfilling, too. Um, mm -hmm. I, and it's also nice because, you know, I, I did um, like a very DIY public sculpture in the community garden um, in my neighborhood in, in Brooklyn. And um, it was kind of signed off and by uh, NYC Parks and I got official signage. And like when I came to Miami and saw these people that I hadn't seen in a year, but they've been like following me on Instagram, um, you know, they didn't want to talk. They didn't bring up, you know, the sculpture that I exhibited in Chelsea, New York in a commercial gallery. They wanted to bring up the public sculpture in like my small local community garden. They thought that was like the coolest thing. So it's like with public sculpture, there's a level of community engagement that you don't necessarily get when you show in a gallery uh, the piece sells, it goes into, you know, some art collector's storage unit and no one ever sees it again. So it's like a different, there's like a kind of um, more of a spiritual fulfillment, I think, from doing public art too, where you feel like it, it's actually impacting people's lives. So, you know, it's, and that's why people do it. It's like, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because, you know, they're, they're able to really put themselves out there, but also there's like an, a community engagement component. Mm -hmm. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you just to spend a few moments to tell people like what, you, you know, what is the composition of your art? What, what does it look like? We're going to give them all of your signature social media you know, um, you know, information, but like, what is it? So visually people, that's what this all, this whole conversation is about. People are getting visualizations and, and all kinds of ideas in their head because it's audio only. We're not showing them anything. So then how would you describe your art? So then what, you know, if they're interested, they're going to go to your website, your Instagram and, you know, be surprised after they think about what you're telling them. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I describe my art? Uh, they're very much so about line. They're dynamic. There's a lot of curves and spikes. I have an affinity for like metallic silvery surfaces. Um, there's and why is that, by the way? Why? I, I don't know. Um, I just have always been partial to silver. <laughs> like, I always wear silver. I'm not, like, a gold person. Oh, I wanted to buy that piece of jewelry today with silver. You're making me... Oh, no. It looks, I'm sure it looks great. It looks great on you. Like, gold, it, <laughs> gold really suits you. It just... It doesn't suit... I don't like wearing gold myself. Like, I, it's fine on no, other people. No, but I love I think silver. I love silver. Yeah. The, the gold that you see on me is all fake. But the silver is, you know, I love the silver. So, so, all right, so go ahead. I shouldn't have interrupted you. So it's all silver sculptures, yeah. Yeah, but I think I have an affinity for silver 
because I come from more of like a punk rock background and like a lot of I feel like a lot of the piercings in that culture are, are typically silver. I guess there's some gold too, but I just feel like there's a lot more silver going on. You know, mm-hmm. it has a little bit more of like a DIY aesthetic or something. Um, but there's like a lot of folds and curves. Um, and there's like these prints that look like they're painted, but like no one, like I collage prints onto the surface with these high quality prints that last a hundred to 200 years. Um, but no one can tell that they're that they're collage. They all think it's paint. Um, and then my paintings are also like there's a lot of similar shapes in them that have like this high that also have the high key color and high contrast. Um, How are the collages put together? I adhere them with matte medium and then I varnish them. Um, either with like a polymer varnish or a polymer varnish and then an enamel. Um, but if I and do outdoor, yes, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and but if I do outdoor sculpture versions, I would probably just use vinyl. Mhm. Why do you do the collage rather than just paint them? Um, I'm a very impatient person. <laughs> there's like a there's like a level of immediacy, immediacy to it that I find really gratifying. Um, and also, I, I, it seems like, I don't know, in, in the years that I was an art fabricator, it seems like they were just hiring me to be a human printer. And so like, just the logic in my head was like, I don't know what the difference is between these paintings that I'm making, you know, as an art fabricator and like an actual print. So like, just my reasoning was like, it's, it's the same thing. Like, I don't think art collectors can tell the difference if something's collaged or painted and like, and like, mm-hmm. and no, in no disrespect, but it's just like art fabrication is now at this like precise level that there is no distinction. And I just think it's more of a, you know, maybe humane gesture to have a machine do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, like I'm also very into sci- sci-fi and cyborg aesthetics and I I feel like, you know, this might be the more of the future of art, although, you know, there will always be art collectors that love, you know, handmade things. But um, just something about this kind of, you know, cyborg theme and like bending metal with machinery and then collaging, you know, intricate patterns that are essentially painted by a machine. Like it just all made sense together. But um I think I'm at this point where I'm going to have like more human touch elements in there. You know, if it's like engraving or um, maybe some paint comes in there, I don't know, but it, it, it probably won't be for a while. Okay. And also tell everyone the sizes of, of the sculptures of what you oh, do. Yeah. Um, there's a range, like there's the tabletop versions that I do, which are like eight or 10 inches tall. And then I, um, there's also like a kind of a middle size tabletop version I do that's like 25 inches tall. Um, and then I also have been doing sculptures that are 48 inches tall, but they really occupy space. Like they, they have a lot of energy to them. They feel bigger than 48 inches. Um, but so that's I, a floor, that was a floor standing. Yes freestanding yeah but some of i've been making you know freestanding sculptures that also have 
hanging mechanisms engineered into them that I just kind of intuitively, um, you know, you know, plan out and construct. So they can also hang on the wall. So like they can be mobile and like someone can move them in a space of like, oh, it can be on the table and be a tabletop piece or I can, you know, put it on the wall when I need more floor space and, or table space. And so it's like they can exist in like a multitude of ways. There's like not one way to look at them. That is a great explanation. And I just also want people to know the depth of, you know, your experience. Mention some of the people that you have worked for. Do you call yourself an apprentice or what, whatever that term is, but I want them to know some of the well-known artists that you've, you know, rubbed elbows with. Um, well, I'm an, I was uh, an artist assistant. The only ones that I'm allowed to name are Jeff Koons and Katarina Gosa. Cause like they're working on such a scale and there's like so many documentaries that's public information that, um, you know, they have artist assistants. Like my name has even been on museum walls, like the Hamburger Bahnhof, because I was part of the production. Um, but you know, as like, yeah, as an assistant. So I learned a lot in terms of like the way these businesses are structured, you know, how there's like, certain freedoms you have to negotiate um and like you kind of have to know yourself in terms of like what freedoms you can let go of and which ones um you know you can't compromise so um you know and I don't necessarily agree with all of their decisions their business decisions but um you know it's like I can pick and choose and learn from what they've done but I I have worked for a number of people, a lot of them don't want art collectors to know that they have fabricators. Right, exactly. And yeah. we can appreciate that. But isn't that the, the education you got from working for these people? I mean, was it, can you compare it to going to school, to art school, as, as opposed to, you know, learning on the job? What was the difference? Um, I guess in the beginning of working for an artist, you learn about certain things about how they negotiate deals, how they how they work with galleries interpersonally, or if collectors come into the studio, um, you know how how they interact, um, how they kind of develop a series of work or a body of work. Um, but at a certain point the learning process kind of tapers off and then you're just kind of, um, you know, working in a factory. <laughs> like you, you basically just have to function as a machine. And that's usually mm -hmm. when I would like lose interest. And at a certain point, I, I just had to move on to something else because it was, it was like such Are we such talking a few months work. or a year? Or what are we talking? I mean, um, sometimes these artists would only need help for a few months. Um, some artists I've worked for for like two and a half years. Um, I left Jeff Koons because I got into grad school. Um, but it was a really interesting experience for me because the whole factory is like a giant performance piece. And he would <laughs> give tours. Yeah, like he would like give tours to art collectors. Um, Right. And it's like I was on a team of like 130 painters. So like I got to meet this whole network 
of painters and like I was able to, you know, make a living and I would listen to podcasts all day and learn all different kinds of information about the world. Um, so I, that was actually a really positive experience for me. But, you know, I left because, you know, I got into grad school, which I applied to before I even started working there. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because I once, I don't know if you've ever heard you're so young, uh, the artist Peter Max, and he's a big commercial artist. Everybody in certain, you know, wealthy communities all owned his work. And he had his studio on the Upper West Side. And I went there for some function I was doing. I was shocked. I was so naive about the art world. I was shocked when I saw all of these interns, whatever you label these people, you know, filling in, you know, the lines of what he drew and getting these works of art done. I'm saying, this is not a Peter Max. You know, I mean, I could be sitting here doing this stuff. You know, it confused the hell out of me until I understood the difference between different artists and what their goals are. And if, then when I learned it, you know, I kind of like put my thumbs down on artists that do that. And then later I learned that it was just a different form of uh, the market, you know, the different segment of the market. And I shouldn't really pass judgment on any of that because they're, you know, that world exists and they're very, and a lot of these guys and gals are very successful and people are very happy having their art in their house and that's what art is all about and it's their imagination so that was number one number two i want to tell you is i'm probably sitting here today in my senior years still working because i started out as a messenger in the world of journalism and it was called the copy girl copy boy and i was able to sit at my desk and you know if somebody rang a bell i had to like you know do an errand for them and uh, there was 12 of us at fairchild publications Women's Wear Daily, Home Furnishings Daily, Footwear News, Supermarket News, uh, W Magazine. And because I did that for five months, and then I was promoted, and I was able to see the way people uh, functioned, you know, uh, in the world of business, and I was able to watch them, I was able to make decisions. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to show people, you know, let them see me sweat. I'm not going to overreact. I'm not going to uh, argue with people. I'm not going to uh, act, you know, uh, elitist or anything. Of course, a lot of it I did, but at the beginning, in order to get started, I actually watched myself very carefully and kept myself cool for years. You know, even if somebody was very critical of me, um, I try not to cry. <laughs> so. Uh, because I wanted everyone to see that I was in it for the long run and I was very serious about the work. And plus the fact I was very passionate. You know, you didn't use that word, but I would definitely describe you as one of the most passionate artists I ever met. And that makes all the difference in the end results. So, uh, you know, I'm not the most brilliant person in the world of public relations or writing or reporting. But I certainly have the passion, and that has helped me. And I could I see great things for you in the future. And I'm thrilled that you really gave us such an education today, Gabo. I mean, it oh, was wow. really, just really fabulous. And I hope that you'll come back again because this has been a dream. Well, I say that a lot to people that I 
I speak to. So let me end it this way. It was a privilege to talk to you because uh, you really made, you just created a vision in front of me. I felt like I was watching a play with you speaking. So that was very gratifying. And I hope that the people that listen to it, because this is a very long podcast, and usually people keep it to 15 minutes. But anyone that's serious about art, you know, could listen to this when they're driving or doing their craft or, you know, whatever they're doing in a dentist's office, and it's going to make the time go very fast. So thank you. Is there anything you want to add before we end this? Oh, I mean, I just want to say thank you for talking to me. I mean, it feels like it's been 10 minutes to me. But, like, I, as someone who spent that, a lot of time. That's how I feel, too. Yeah, I mean, as, as someone who spends a lot of time alone in the studio, uh, I prefer the long format interviews, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the long format podcast. So I guess it's just how I um, like to converse. Yeah, but well, I should say is you probably haven't, we haven't even like, you know, touched a bit of what you're all about and what's going to happen. So you're definitely going to have to come back again. This has really been great. And attached to this podcast, we'll show pictures of you and some of your work. And definitely the garden in Brooklyn. I must have a photo of that. When you mentioned that, I just, I, I just felt like I was with a very uh, worthwhile human being, somebody that was really true blue. So I hope I could have that to go along with this podcast. I hope you have a photograph of it. So yeah, great. of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Thank I think you so it, much. I think it has, I, tell everybody how they could find you on Instagram, wherever wherever you're located. Let's end with that. Um, so you can find me on Instagram for more regular updates on the studio and my life at Glam Goth Gabo. That's G-L-A-M-G-O-T-H-G-A-B-O. And then my website is just GabrielleVitolo.com um, and you should be able to Google that and, and have it come up. But yeah, those are the two um, main online presences that I have. Fabulous. Thank you so much and uh, all right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lewis. Bye-bye.